Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. The following podcast is an exclusive presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips and advice on writing fast, writing often and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Welcome, everyone, to the Prolific Writer Podcast. This is your host, Ryan J. Pelton. Welcome to my podcast. It is so good to be back in action. Episode number 58 today is going to be a great one. I have Michael Bunker on the show, the infamous, the famous Amish sci-fi writer, the off-gritter. And Michael comes by the show and offers some great advice to us aspiring writers. We get to hear about his journey from living a normal modern life going off the grid and some of his early success with writing books for off grid folks and the things that he was learning and then getting into sci-fi and having a successful career. And he talks about the ups and downs. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing this interview with you. And so it's really good to be back with you today. I know I said that I would be getting back to the weekly release schedule and had a couple uh, rescheduled interviews last week. And so had to bump back our show, but that's okay. I'm think this episode, this interview will make up for it with Michael Bunker. And uh, so really glad that you're back with us. We'll be getting back on track here. I know I had a baby and uh, you know how that goes. Uh, busy, a uh, lot going on, a lot of kids stuff going on, work and everything else. So uh, we will get back on track. But uh, hey, before we jump into the interview with Michael Bunker, I want to say that our show today um, is supported and hosted on the Project Entertainment Network. Go check out their shows, projectentertainmentnetwork.com uh, with tons and tons of podcasts on a variety of subjects. But our sponsor today uh, for, that sponsors all the Project Entertainment Network shows is Subculture Corsets and Clothing, as always. It's my favorite store for unusual clothing, shoes, and accessories. They offer a wide selection of men's and women's clothing at great prices. Subculture also offers a cool selection of shoes and accessories. Steampunk, gothic, apparel, retro, corsets, and so much more. So if you go to Subculture Corsets online, subculturecorsets.com, that's subculturecorsets.com. Make sure you use the discount code, the prolific writer, and you'll get 10% off your next purchase. And if you happen to be in the Jacksonville, Florida area, stop by the show show, stop by the store just off I 95 and you can check out their store. They have a lot of great stuff. So thank you subculture corsets and clothing for being a sponsor of this show and all of the great project entertainment network shows. And so before we get into the interview with Michael Bunker, I have nothing else to say. And so I want you to enjoy my interview with Michael 
Bunker. Never has the story of the old glory needed introduction or induction. Just a passing on of morals from the parents to the children, generation after generation, one nation to the next. It's the story of American Revolution. Welcome everyone to the Prolific Writer Podcast. It's your host, Ryan Pelton, and I'm so privileged today to have with me no other than Michael Bunker. Michael Bunker is a USA Today best-selling author. He's an off-gridder, which we'll talk about, husband, father of four. And uh, lives in Central Texas, and we're going to talk about his books and his writing and his life. And uh, so, w- welcome to the show, Michael. Say hello. Hey, man. Hello, and hello to everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad to be here. Well, Michael, it is a great uh, privilege to have you on the on the show. I I discovered your work a few years back, uh, your Pennsylvania series, and. Uh, I have a kind of a funny story about that. As I was trying to describe it to my wife, and I said, I said it's it's Amish sci-fi, like you know, obviously Amish sci-fi, I mean, it's, everybody's reading that these days. And uh, she laughed and said, that's not a thing. And I had to show her and I said, it, it is a thing and it's really good and you should check it out. So, um, so welcome to the show, Michael. And, you know, some say that you um, maybe developed or came up with your own genre of Amish sci-fi. Um, but talk a little bit about how kind of you got into writing, especially sci-fi and Amish sci-fi, because you talk about how you kind of stumbled into that um, arena. And so talk a little bit about your, your background. Yeah. It, uh, you know, we, we live out on a farm and about, uh, 12 years ago, we decided to go, you know, totally off grid, not just off grid, like solar power and all that, but to, uh, kind of off, off grid where we were, uh, living much like the Amish do. I have an office where I have solar power and, uh, uh, to charge some devices so that I can do my writing and this type of thing. But, uh, and so to me, you know, the uh, the tension between technology and a plain and simple life, which we wanted to live, has kind of always been there. And it's always uh, it's always been a, a topic for uh, science fiction. And so um, it kind of it kind of was a natural thing. I, I, I accidentally I, I say that I accidentally became a sci fi writer because I didn't really know that what I was writing was sci fi. I, I wrote my first novel, which was called The Last Pilgrims which was really post-apocalyptic and um, it takes place uh, 25 years after a systemic collapse of the entire, you know, industrial uh, 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 grid system. And um, I, I, I was really just writing it as an examination of, uh, of what could happen in the world uh, based on our dependency on some kind of sketchy systems. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't realize it at the time. And of course this was before the uh, big, um, indie book uh, revolution or at the very beginning of it, I didn't know that it existed. I didn't realize that Amazon categorized books um, that are post-apocalyptic or dystopian as science fiction in the, in the parent category. And so when the book came out, although there are really no science fiction elements, it's actually almost like it would be 250 years ago. The book was categorized as science fiction. And, and, um, and then when it became uh, popular, people said, Oh, an Amish sci-fi writer. <laughs> and so that kind of struck me that uh, I kind of got that hung on me before I even knew what it was. And so I thought, well, you know, what more natural thing is there than for a plain person, a person who does live off grid to examine uh, the tension that exists uh, between our lives and technology. It exists with everyone, but at different levels. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to write this, uh, this book, Pennsylvania, which is uh, basically just the story of how when the Amish first came to America, they were a landlocked people uh, in Switzerland and the Alps and um, France and uh, had moved to, to the Netherlands. And they um, they decided to come to America. You know, they went on ships. They, th- this would have been just like a spaceship to them. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of sparked the idea of what happened, what would happen if there was a um, a plan to colonize another planet and encouraging Amish people to do that so that there could be food production. And that was kind of the, the birth of the idea. Well, yeah, I, I love the, the series, the, the Pennsylvania uh, series, if, if you're listening and aren't, haven't heard of Michael's work and, uh, you know, it's an, an Amish, uh, kid, you know, Jedediah, and he's kind of a fish out of water. And, and I think what, what really 
uh, makes the book great is one for me, I'm not a big science fiction uh, reader, uh, but because you don't deal with so much sci-fi, you know, hard sci-fi technological things, right. I think it, it actually resonates with a lot of, a lot of different people, especially people who are like, Oh, sci-fi. I don't like that. Um, you know, some call it hard, some call it soft, whatever. Um, but I think that really comes through. And, and I love the, the, the story because he, he is such a, a fish out of water and it would be like anyone going into a foreign land or a foreign country and, and kind of trying to find their way around and everything's so different and scary and, um, and so that re- that really comes out uh, in your writing, and and uh, and I think what's what's interesting about your your career is that people have found you through your sci-fi work, through your other you know dystopian uh, writings, your kind of you know Russian esque um, books like Wick, um, but also yeah. your your off grid nonfiction stuff that uh, you've been doing a lot of teaching, and that's actually how you kind of got into. Um, I should say, kind of got onto the scene was was some of your off grid nonfiction books. So talk a little bit about um, kind of how that emerged uh a few years back yeah i had a a a blog when i very first uh we lived in a in a on-grid farm 12 13 years ago and we were experimenting uh with some pre-industrial ways of doing things and in 2005 we decided to move out to central texas and to start an off-grid farm and um, at that time i was writing a blog and on my blog, I was um, putting up chapters of my thoughts of these things as we were doing them. And that kind of developed until about 2009. Um, I was contacted by a guy who uh, had been reading through the series. And he said, you know, I would like to publish this on uh, on my website. And this was a pretty big off-grid website. And I, that's when it fr- first kind of struck me that it really was a book. It had started off as just individ- individual chapters about topics like light and heat and food and food preservation and those type of things. And um, and so there were enough people that were really excited about it that they said, well, you ought, to, you, know, you ought to publish it as a book. And I didn't know anything really about publishing a book. And so a friend of mine uh, – and this was probably about two years before the um, – indie public uh, publishing revolution really got started. He had looked up uh, KDP and Amazon's uh, create space and all of these things and said, you know, he would help me uh, put it together. And so, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we, we put this nonfiction book together called surviving off off grid. And, um, and, and it really just took off. It was really an explosion. Um, and, you know, I had offers of publication, uh, um, uh, mainstream publication and um uh, they started a documentary about uh the, the what was in the book and and uh, the book did really really well and and that kind of sparked the idea of the first fiction book which was the last pilgrims which was uh, what would this look like if there was some type of systemic collapse so i was writing the the nonfiction first and really experiencing it and living it first and then and then that uh, sparked the the fiction works, which have just kind of snowballed on their own. Now, I, I've heard you talk talk about your off grid, you know, playing lifestyle, and and I think people have a lot of misconceptions, you know, that you know, are you Amish? Are you, you know, what is yeah. this? And uh, and I think it's really fascinating because I, I think you talk a little bit. I've heard you in other interviews and other um, things you've written uh, about, you know, you're not really trying to just find, you know, new ways of kind of not using our, you know electricity or our gas that, you know, our cities provide, you know, as a kind of just an alternative, but you're, you're trying to figure out how to actually live, you know, eat, survive off the grid. I mean, literally off the grid. And, uh, so talk to us a little bit about that. Talk to a little bit, kind of the differences, you know, that you aren't really Amish and, and, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, uh, but also kind of what that lifestyle looks like, you know, what does a typical day look like? And, um, yeah, what can some people learn from, from that? Well, we um, we had started a uh, or we ca- I call it an on grid farm. It was a small farm, <clears throat> just a few acres, and where we had chickens, uh, ducks, geese, turkeys, uh, a few cows, um, uh, goats, and uh, gardens, and all of these things. We had a well, and we had you know, good electricity, and um, it really just kind of started as an inkling of an idea. Of well, what? How would we do this thing? Whatever it was, uh, uh, butchering chickens, uh, 
growing the gardens if if we didn't have access to uh, if something happened to the grid system because even our water had to be pumped from the ground, which took electricity. And so you, your first instinct is, okay, well, we'll just have a generator in case that happens. Well, then what happens if the if the systemic uh, thing happens longer? What if it's longer than uh, or your generator breaks down? So we would just have these little exercises. And sometimes I would just go turn the power off at the box and we'd go a couple of days just to see what we missed, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, these things happen to people regularly with power outages. We had a um, ice storm just a week or two ago, and a friend of mine lost power for uh, three days. I just happened to be at his house when it happened. And so, you know, it, it was a time to examine, you know, wh- where our vulnerability vulnerabilities were. And as we started doing it, we actually realized we liked it more. There was a lot more peace. Um, we felt a lot more comfortable. Um, we felt like our, our Children were going to have these skills that uh, would translate. So we're not Amish, although we are. We call ourselves plain. Um, we do dress uh, plain, and we we live completely off the grid. Like I said, I have an office that has solar power for minimal solar power for for charging devices that I use for my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and by work, I mean my writing. Um, but as far as our farm goes and all of that, we we live off grid, mm-hmm. and so. Um, it is kind of confusing to people because they'll see me online or they'll see me on Facebook and I have a pretty, pretty large social media following and they'll say, well, you know, you can't be off grid if you're on Facebook, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is it's really kind of funny because, you know, Bill Gates is off grid. Uh, uh, off grid mm-hmm. can mean a lot of different things. Sure. And there are people who have, you know, solar panels with generators and all of those things all the way down to people who, who may not have any of those things, but they might have a cell phone that they charge with a little, you know, five watt charger, you know, solar charger or something like that. And uh, we're, we're kind of uh, closer to to that end of the scale where we charge a few batteries um, for some uh, uh, devices, laptops and that type of thing. And, and when I write or if I have to discuss things be interviewed with you or talk things with my agent or uh, producer or anything like that, uh, then we have, I have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the only difference is we don't depend upon those things. And everybody in, in their life draws a line. Everybody does. Nobody has all of the technology. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody yeah. says, okay, well, you know, I, I'm not, I like this, but I'm not going that far. And that's just where we've drawn the line way, way back mm-hmm. where we think, you know, I'm fine with uh, renting a backhoe and digging a hole since if we have to go through six or eight inches of rock. But I'd also like to try it uh, the old-fashioned way first. Mm-hmm. And so when we dug our root cellar, uh, we dug it by hand, and it's 11 feet deep, and we went through six inches of solid bedrock, and we pounded it and broke it with sledgehammers and, and picks and rock breakers and lifted the rock out and, and built it by hand, and we did it. And so now I know how to do it, and I also know that it can be done, and so that I don't have a problem using a backhoe if we need to do that. Uh, but we just prefer not to most of the time. We don't we prefer not to spend the money, but it's also just a way of living where you, uh, you spend more time talking, less time with machines and loud, loud, uh, in, um, interruptions and those type of things. So it's really blended well with the life that, um, uh, I have with my writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, what I really appreciate you is you do take a very, you know, humble approach to it as well as you kind of say, Hey, this is what, we've decided as a family, this is what, how we're going to live our lives. You know, you don't try to make it these kind of dogmatic things. I mean, you obviously have friends and family that don't live that way. Um, and you know, you tell your story, you, you know, you went to college and, you know, met your wife and you were living in the city and, you know, and just had these kind of, you know, new convictions and just felt like, you know, maybe this is what we want for our family. And so, um, I really appreciate you the way you've kind of told your story and, and, you know, helped people along the way that want to maybe kind of move this way or want to, you know, implement different things. Um, but I also love the way it really comes into your fiction writing. Um, because you, I, I think, you know, some, some of the writers I've had on that really, they, we talk about, you know, uh, being able to say things through fiction that aren't as easy to say through nonfiction, you know, just the, the kind of what, what ifs, you know, what if, you know, the world went nutso and went off the grid and how would we survive? And, you know, I think about that with my family, like we, we, we don't know how to do much, you know, and, yeah. and if we lost power for days and days and days, you know, what would we do? And those kinds of things. Um, 
but you know, there's those themes that kind of run through your your fiction as well, which I, I think is makes it in, interesting and intriguing. Um, and one of those big themes that you've um, talked about and, and have been influenced by is um, Russian fiction. And I'm a big, uh, I love Russian sh- short stories, and, uh, and and you've talked about that. Um, a little bit on your blog and, and other places where you've kind of um, enjoyed, you've talked about how you've enjoyed the indie space because um, you know, you have the freedom to kind of write the things you want to write. And some of those things are real, you know, if you want to call it literary or, you know, more um, you know, literary fiction or Russian fiction or, you know, big doorstop kind of novels, you have that freedom to do that. Um, but you always, you always say, you know, it, it's really sad that, you know, agents and publishers don't want to publish, you know, quote unquote literary because it doesn't sell, but you don't believe that's true. So talk, talk us through a, a little bit about that. Um, some of the projects you've been working on, they're a little more in the literary genre. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I got into uh, Russian literature, kind of in a roundabout way i was actually i actually found um alexander solzhenitsyn's uh, gulag archipelago the first doorstop <laughs> of the of the series and read that uh, when i was in college and um it really got me interested in, in uh that kind of era of history and, and what led up to it and so i kind of started working backwards from there and i i really got into like you mentioned the russian short stories um turgenev and uh, Gogol and you name it. Um, I, I've read them and, and I really, uh, fell in love with that whole, the whole style, uh, the very in-depth, um, uh, almost painting like quality art, art like quality of the, of the literature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had always wanted to read uh, Tolstoy and I read some of Tolstoy's shorter works and I tried war and peace like three or four times over the years and just never just, there was just too many tea parties at the beginning. And it was like for, the, for an American Western mind, it's very, very difficult to, to get into that because we, we have been kind of trained almost for this instant gratification, get into the story. And, uh, and for someone to take hundreds of pages describing personal relationships and, <laughs> you know, a very, very in-depth uh, portrait of what Russia was like, uh, before Napoleon invaded. Um, and if you don't understand why that's important uh, to the whole story, then it's easy to cast it off and go, this is just way, way too much. And I did that. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, one day I decided, I don't care what happens. <laughs> I'm going to mm-hmm. read this book. And I, I powered through, you know, the first uh, four or 500 pages. And then I just, I was just completely uh, involved in it. I was so, the, the, the texture of it was so intense and, and of course it builds and builds and builds. And then you get into the war scenes and, and all of those things happening in, in Moscow towards the end of the book. And, and when I was, when it was over, I was just blown away and I understood why people said this was probably the greatest novel. And then I went and read Anna Karenina, which I think was even better. And, um, and, uh, Dostoevsky and all of those things. And, and, and then I, I would go back and I, I re- read modern uh, American literature, and I'm not saying anything bad about it. I just don't enjoy it. Um, it there's very little time spent on those uh, those types of textures and and uh, subtext and all of that. And so I, I, I wanted and I want I've always wanted to put you know that type of thing into my books and in the mainstream world. There's really just not a market for it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that they sometimes they uh, the system kind of handpicks somebody that they decide is going to be the next literary writer. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, that has something to do with uh, social issues and politics and all of these type of things, and it's not really some type of uh, natural zeitgeist that someone just rises to the top like the cream. Then everybody says, "Oh, you got to read this guy." Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, but for the most part. Uh, that those types of books uh, aren't even encouraged. Agents don't look for them. Nobody's really interested. It's not like it used to be where um, you had these agents who were almost like uh, sports scouts, like baseball scouts. Mm -hmm. And they would go out and like find somebody who had a lot of talent. And then somebody like Max Perkins, who was Hemingway's agent and Thomas Wolfe's agent that, you know, they were known to have an eye for talent. And so people would buy a book because, because Max Perkins edited it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then that, that would introduce people to somebody who could really write. So that really doesn't even exist as a system anymore. Agents just don't do that. And, um, uh, they're looking for the next Hunger Games, the next you know thing that's going to make a lot of money, or they're right. looking for some type of small uh, subgenre, uh, targeted uh, type of subgenre, and and so the the world that existed back when literary, literary fiction was a big thing just just really doesn't exist anymore. So I feel like in the indie uh, world is the place where this ought to take place because we have the ability to do whatever we want to do, first of all. And if it finds readers, it does it on its own merits. And, um, it, you know, it, maybe it do, it's not going to go out and make uh, as much money as, you know, even Pennsylvania did. Mm-hmm. But I started off by just by putting some of those elements into books like Wick, uh, which is a Russian-style American dystopian post-apocalyptic novel. It was a um, prequel to The Last Pilgrims. And we're in, uh, now in the in the planning stages of doing the the sequel series uh, to the last pilgrims called uh, Cold Harbor, uh, which will be in that same universe. And then I also started on, on my Patreon, which is uh, people are familiar with that. Patreon is a way that people can pay uh, become patrons of an author or an artist or a musician. And I don't know if you know much about that, but it used to be really the way the way it, uh, things were done. Art mm-hmm. was done this way back in the Middle Ages and afterwards. And um, even during the time of Hemingway, uh, there were people who would kind of adopt artists who they thought had talent, and they would uh, give them a monthly stipend or something like that to keep them writing. And um, it happened with Ezra Pound and uh, Hemingway and uh, a few others. And so uh, Patreon.com uh, came around, which is a way for people to support an artist uh, a monthly in exchange for receiving some of their work regularly, monthly, or, or for, for me, it's pretty much everything I put out, including monthly chapters. But I started writing a book called um, Hell in the Sea, which is kind of the modern indie revolution version of The Sun Also Rises. It's a, a book about the indie revolution and my experience uh, living through it and writing through it and uh, with that type of literary uh, concept. And it's been very successful. It's not fin- the book's not finished yet, but all of my Patreon uh, subscribers get the chapters as they come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, actually, I, I'm, I'm one of those. And uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying it. And um, I, I love the way you, um, one, it's a great, it's going to be a great book once people can, can get it or you can get it on the Patreon. We'll put that in the show notes too so people can find it. Uh, but I've also liked the way you've kind of experimented with a serialized kind of format. And that's actually kind of how you started Pennsylvania. And I think Wick right. was serialized, if I'm not mistaken. It, it um, was, yeah. And kind of, you know, wrote it in parts. And then, you know, Hell in the Sea is written in parts. Um you know, you've talked about it. I've actually talked about it. And I mean, some people know this, some people don't, but that's, you know, actually a very um, literary historical way of actually, you know, getting work out in the world, you know, um, you know, that it has a, has a deep history to it. So talk, talk a little bit about your just serialized uh, stuff. You know, are you still doing that as much? I mean, other than the Patreon, are you seeing success that way or is it becoming more difficult? I know people have different opinions on that and you know, what works and what doesn't. Um, but yeah, talk, talk a little bit about kind of even how you started getting into the more serialized uh, stuff and, um, and then kind of where you are now. Well, I took a, I took a year or so to write or maybe a year to write the last pilgrims and put it out as a novel with the idea that it would be part of a trilogy. And then, um, uh, it, and it did kind of well, but you know, I felt like I kind of needed to try a bunch of different angles to, to see what, w- what I needed to be writing. When I, when I decided to write Wick, which is the prequel story to The Last Pilgrims, a good friend of mine, a high school uh, friend of mine, uh, Chris Awalt, we were uh, talking about this idea. This was 2012, right before the election. A, a actual hurricane hit New York City uh, just days before the election. And then seven days after the hurricane, there was a nor'easter went through there. And it was kind of disaster upon disaster. And this kind of uh, fueled an idea for the prequel uh, disaster for that uh, eventuated 25 years later in the book, The Last Pilgrims. And so we decided we wanted to put Wick out serially. 
And there had been some successful um, uh, attempts at this in the in the indie world. Uh, Hugh Howey's Wool was one of them, and probably one of probably one of the first real big popular ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there were also uh, others, and and for a while that was kind of the way people um, did things. And then it's morphed a little. I, I think it's still a, a great way to write if you. If it's for you, if you're the type of writer who can do that, who can plan things out and understands how, how many books it's going to take and how you get people to where you want to get them. Um, the, a lot of readers do have a problem with uh, a an unfinished work where mm-hmm. it's obvious that the book it finishes and, and is designed to go into another book. And so you'll have some reviewers who don't really like that idea. Mm-hmm. And we try to let people know up front if what they're buying is, is serialized. Um, it, it's, uh, it's really kind of, a uh, Jekyll and Hyde with the reader, because mm-hmm. although we all say we don't like that when we get to the, if we actually like the book, we love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if the book was just okay, then you're like, ah, oh, they're just trying to con me into getting another book. <laughs> right. Uh, but if people love the book, then, uh, and, and I've written standalone books like brother Frankenstein, uh, brother Frank, and where people like immediately the day they read it, they're contacting me go like, when is the next book coming out? Mm-hmm. So you can't win in, in any way. If right. you write a good book, people are going to want more of it. And uh, and so uh, what Patreon allows me to do is people know that up front. And uh, they know that not only are they going to get the chapter uh, chapters of that particular book, which is Hell in the Sea, which come out, but anything else I write. So I write short stories and I put them out uh, for free to everybody who's on Patreon I started uh, a sequel to a, a book I wrote with Kevin Summers called Legendarium, which was very popular. Uh, so we're writing Legendarium 2, and people are getting those chapters for free as they come out. Uh, but the, the idea of it being serialized, to me, um, it, it's very uh, conducive to the way that I write, mm-hmm. because I do write longer works. If I actually sat down and wrote Wick, for example— um, is I, th- I can't remember how many pages it is, but it's like you said, it's a doorstop. Mm-hmm. And in order to publish it, where uh, when we published the omnibus edition so that people would buy it, we had to use like eight point type <laughs> because uh, modern readers are so intimidated by a thick book. And I'm going to write thick books. That's the way that I write. Mm-hmm. And so when people can get those, uh, like uh, Wick came out in five parts, Pennsylvania came out in four parts, it's really um, it's a lot more uh, uh, accessible, and they feel like achievable. And I think the books have sold better. And then by word of mouth, once the omnibus comes out, people will buy it. But if I was to sit down right now and write um, all of Hell in the Sea and and publish it all at once, it would be I don't know six seven hundred pages, and uh, and that can be kind of intimidating to modern readers. So. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, everybody's different and everybody enjoys writing different ways, but that's really kind of how I write. So it just works out well for me. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's great. Um, I, I think it, you know, kind of feeds the kind of binging Netflix culture, you know, pieces here, pieces right. there. And, you know, I mean, yeah, some people do like it all at once and, and yeah, every, every reader is different. Um, so when you're, you know, let's get a little bit of your process. Cause when you're writing like a serialized book, I mean, do you know, the end or is it more, you know, I, I have, you know, big ideas. I'm kind of writing it, you know, part by part and I just kind of see where it goes and then I, I release it out or how, how does that kind of work with your own flow? I mean, if you know, it's going to be a long book um, and you're releasing it part by part, I mean, do you kind of have the beginning, middle and end figured out or is it just kind of, you know, enjoy the ride, see where it goes? Uh, most of the time I have a, uh, I, I know where it's going and I know the overall outline of the, of the story that I want to tell. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of freedom while I'm writing to explore the space and, and, uh, and to expand or, or to go off in a different direction. I don't, I don't real, really rigidly, uh, direct myself that I have to stick to, uh, stick to this plan. And so, for example, when I wrote the last pilgrims, um, I knew that I wanted to write the, a trilogy and I knew that storyline because it was based on the true story of the ancient Waldenses, who were a uh, group of plain people who lived in the Alps uh, during a period basically from around 
300 AD up until uh, the modern age. And there were uh, attempts to, to genocide them for over a thousand years by uh, uh, a lot of different uh, religious groups. And, uh, and so that was kind of the outline of the story. I wanted to tell their story, but in a modern period. So I knew it was going to be three books. And I knew that I wanted to, you know, what beats I wanted to hit. And when I wrote the first one, it was uh, obviously uh, was the first of a trilogy. And at the time that I wrote that was, I think, when um, I think when Hunger Games came out. Mm -hmm. And so I had not read it and did not read Hunger Games for several years after I wrote it, after I wrote uh, Last Pilgrims. But I did see how well that series sold. And I thought, well, you know, the idea that I had of this being a trilogy may work out, you know. Uh, so uh, but then other books. So like, for example, Wick, uh, which we put out as five standalone, uh, not standalone, five uh, parts of a series and then put them into an omnibus. I did not know when I wrote The Last Pilgrims, it just starts 25 years after an undescribed systemic uh reset so there is no power mm -hmm. um uh the the tagline of the book is 25 years in the future is 500 years in the past and so i it wasn't until i started talking with uh chris awalt about writing wick that we came up with the idea of what the disaster was that led up to the last pilgrims mm -hmm. well i i was contacted by amazon um this was a, probably around 2013, and uh, they asked me to write a serialized uh, book that would be in the world of Kurt Vonnegut, his, his book Cat's Cradle. Mm -hmm. And so basically it would be an authorized um, sequel to Vonnegut's Cat's Cradles, but uh, they wanted to put it out through their Kindle serials arm uh, of Amazon Publishing, and so they wanted to put it out in eight parts. Uh, with a uh, a way that people could buy the whole thing up front or they could buy each part and then the whole book would be put out and published as a a novel after that was done so in that book i knew that there was going to be eight episodes it was very much like netflix it was like getting an order <laughs> from netflix this is the story we want and we want eight episodes we want them delivered uh you know this many weeks apart and um they're going to be published um, uh, one at a time. So, I mean, it, it wasn't like I could sit there and go, okay, I find out this happens later in the book and I can go back to the first chapter and change it. Cause I couldn't change it. That part had already been published. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, that was really kind of an experience that taught me to make sure that I know what I'm doing and not kind of like the lost thing where, where at the end you're like, Oh gosh, I got to come up with an ending to this book. <laughs> and so, uh, now when I do a serialized, uh, novel, I make sure that I have uh, it really uh, pretty much worked out. And then I have some freedom while I'm writing to explore. Okay. Yeah, I like that. I, I like the way you're just, you're trying different, you know, ways, different mediums, different, you know, because you do realize how subjective, you know, reader, readers can be and you know, what they like, what they don't like, how they, how they, you know, get their books, how they don't get their books, you know, short, long, you know, you name it. If it feels like every time we decide here's, here's where it's going, nobody really knows. Um, well, and exactly. uh, it changes, you know, so often. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one of the things you, you talk about too is, you know, you've had, you had some great success with Pennsylvania and, you know, some of your other books, um, you know, getting published, you know, on, on Amazon and, and different, you know, short stories and, and genres. You, I think you even had Pennsylvania, uh, got picked up for a, a, either a TV script or a movie script. Um, and, and yet you still talk about, you know, Hey, this is still a struggle. It's still a grind. You know, I'm not making millions of dollars. I'm not, you know, I'm still trying to make a living and, and trying to provide for my family through my writing. I'd love to do that, you know, and have that be my main source of income. So, so talk a little bit about just kind of the, the ups and downs, you know, you've been through a lot, you've written nonfiction, fiction, um, this, the ups and downs of being a, a writer an indie writer, uh, in today's world. Well, yeah, and that's that's the thing. It is ups and downs. It is no in no way uh, other than uh, for a few almost inconsequential lightning strike uh, kind of situations is anybody, um, you know, going out there and, and, and just making millions of dollars. It's, it's, it's almost like any other 
a field of artistic endeavor or athletic endeavor. You know, there's very, very few people that play in the NBA. And, and a lot of those things are, uh, uh, they're freakish acts of nature. You know, if you're born seven foot two and have a little bit of athletic <laughs> ability to play in the NBA, but for the rest of us, it's not really something that's available to us. And, um, with writing, it's even more subjective because, um, it really has to do with what's going on in the culture and uh, political forces and social forces and um, the market marketing forces that are completely outside of our control. And so I have had some success um, surviving off off grid. The nonfiction book did really, really well. And uh, it, it went from, you know, selling a hundred books or something a month to selling a thousand books a month to, you know, getting offers for um, uh, publishing deals that weren't you know, anything, nothing life changing, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, and uh, deals that I subsequently turned down. But with Pennsylvania, it was the first time that um, things kindly kind of did go a little viral for a little while. But people need to realize that doesn't last. It doesn't last for anybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so. um you know, there are these ups and downs and, and a lot of there are people that have figured out, you know, ways to um, to make a living doing this. And a lot of it has to do with it's a balancing act is what, what do you really want out of life? Mm -hmm. You know, and so I have some very good friends who are very successful uh, indie writers who put out books every month and um, they found an audience and they're doing very well. Uh, that's, uh, and that was completely available to me. Um, I just, it, it did not blend with the life that I actually want to lead. I, I really don't want to spend that much time, um, sitting at a computer because I'm a, I'm a plain person. I'm a farmer and I do like doing the farming and I do like spending time with the family and I do like experimenting, uh, with, uh, other projects and those type of things and writing, it's not a part-time deal for me. It's still something that, that I do very seriously, but it, it's not so, you know, it used to be, you know, let's go back 50 years, 60 years ago. Uh, you know, you, you got a book contract if you were good and very few people did, but if you got a book contract, you weren't wealthy then, you know, usually the wife or husband had to work. Um, and there might have been teaching on the side. A lot of people that were successful authors were also teachers. Mm -hmm. And you had maybe 1% or 2% who were actually big name, wealthy authors. There were very, very few. Um, even people, I, I know people just during the time that I've been in the indie world who were in the exact same place as me, who went out and made a mid six-figure advance doing a mainstream publishing deal and the book you know, that they got the money for didn't sell and, uh, they may never get another book deal. And so, and they don't get all that money at once. So, I mean, it was, you know, it depends. Every, everybody looks at money differently. I live very, very, uh, frugally. We live off grid and we raise a lot of our own food. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a couple of thousand dollars a month is a big deal to me, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I have friends who are writers who in their regular jobs make, 80, dollars $150,000 a year or whatever. And, um, and, and of course they live in places that are a lot more expensive, but you know, so I, I know people who, who, you know, made 30, 40, $50,000 a year, uh, writing, uh, and then some even made a little bit more, but if you don't, um, if you don't really develop a, a solid following, uh, that you can consistently sell books to that all goes away. And, too many people have gone out and, and really convinced themselves that somehow uh, writing is different than music or art or anything else. And it's not, you know, it's uh, it's becoming more like those things. And so and, and in many ways, that's good because we do have for, for hundreds of years, writers did not have any way, legitimate way to publish outside of this very narrow system that picked and choose uh, who was going to be read. And we've, we've gotten past that. Mm -hmm. Anybody can write now, anybody can publish. And, um, and then the market will determine whether or not it's, it's lucrative or not, but anybody can write. And, uh, 
That doesn't mean it's all good. Most of it is not good. But there are ups and downs, and it is uh, a struggle. I don't spend a lot of time like I used to trying to figure out what people are buying because I've just I've just gotten to the point in my career where I don't really care. Mm-hmm. I really want to write what I want to write, and I hope that I've developed a big enough audience that people trust me to put out a good story, something that they're going to enjoy and that they're going to get their money's worth. Mm-hmm. And and other than that, you know, I like my life the way that it is. And so for everybody, that's going to be different. There are people that really, really are go-getters that want to spend a lot of time micromanaging their marketing and, and learning all of those things. And I encourage them to do that. If that's, if that's the life that you want, then go do that. Mm-hmm. And there is money to be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, and I appreciate your, your honesty about that. I think, uh, you know, you, you have decided, Hey, I want to write what I want to write. And you know, there are a lot of authors. I mean, I, I interview them and, they write in genres they don't, I mean, they've told me they don't want to write in, but it makes them money. And, um, right. That's kind of, you know, sometimes it's even just writing books they don't want to write so they can write the books they want to write. And, you know, everyone, exactly. I think everyone has to make a decision on, you know, how you go to sleep at night and, you know, what the stories you want to tell and, and how you, how you do that. Um, but yeah, we, we thank, you know, the, the indie space and the indie revolution that we can have opportunities to write the stories you want to write and how, and kind of pick ourselves, if you will. Um, and would you say, and again, kind of what I'm hearing, picking up when you, when you think about, you know, what works as far as marketing, getting your name out there, getting your books out there, um, you know, it seems like for you really the, the thing is, you know, writing a good book, writing a good story, and then, you know, having fans you directly can interact with that like your work and really other than that i mean what else is there <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing and i think um you know um th- there's a lot you, there's a lot of courses out there on things like branding and mm-hmm. you know email marketing and all those t- and all those things can be very very valuable and i encourage people to kind of look into those things but my I, my my bottom line in every interview with me i've ever done I tell people is, is you have an obligation to make the book as good as it can be, mm-hmm. which means to improve your writing, to improve your skill, your talent, and to, uh, to put out a product that is as good or better than people used to be able to get or, or still can get through the mainstream publishing system. And so that, that is really kind of my bottom line with myself is that the writing has to consistently improve and be better and to be good quality. And I want good covers. I want good editing. I want all of those things to be good. And then all of that marketing can work, but all of that marketing and and you have a bad product is not going to help. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's uh, putting first things first and, and, and the opportunity to be able to uh, directly contact and deal with the reader and uh, in the way that we can now, to me, is very, very valuable. And, and it's the best thing about what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would encourage anyone that's listening, you know, check out Michael's work, um, get on his mailing list. You'll see how um, I, I love the way I've been on your list for years. But, uh, you know, you, you're, you're just kind of straightforward. <laughs> you know, you just kind of say, hey, this is what I'm working on. You know, here it is. You know, you're not scammy. You're straightforward. Um, you know, you're not trying to pull wool over anyone's eyes and just say, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm writing. This is what I'm up to, you know, check it out. Don't check it out. (laughs) Um, you know, uh, here's, here's the need. Here's, you know, what I got going on. Um, so yeah. So just tell us a little bit about your, your process, um, and just kind of how it's evolved. Like what does the daily kind of habit look like as far as your writing goes? I mean, are you working on multiple projects, one project? Are you, you know, outlining your story? Are you just kind of going for it? Um, yeah, take us through just kind of a, a typical, typical day on days when I'm writing and I, I don't have the ability to write every day and I don't really want to write every day, but on the days when I'm writing unhappily, there's sometimes there's things that are kind of forced to the forefront. And so, uh, that means either editing or, um, you know, if I have to get a chapter of one of the Patreon things out or, you know, I set myself, um, Goals. Sometimes yeah, you might know about some of the short stories that I've done where I've written a long uh, form short story in a single day and not only wrote the whole story, but had it edited, uh, put a cover on it and published it all in one day. Mm-hmm. And so I will set myself these kind of deals. And so on that day, you know, that's going to be a unique experience because I'll probably be up at five in the morning 
and writing until uh, uh, late in the day and then going through the editing process and all of that. But an average day, usually um, I, I have four or five projects that are that I'm working on. Uh, I'll pick the project that I'm working on. And, uh, for example, if it's just going to be pure writing, I try, I, I'm not able to write with a lot of music or sound. So I go down to my office, uh, make myself as comfortable as possible. I usually spend about an hour rereading, um, kind of leading me up to where I am in the story. And then I just go for it. And, uh, I'm able to write, uh, anywhere from, I've done, average 2000 to 2500 words uh in a couple of hours or i've written 10 to 12000 words in a day uh, up to the long form short stories that i've done that are even longer than that and that's not spending a whole lot of time editing but doing some editing too mm-hmm. and then you know i may go a day or two where i either don't write or i'm just going back through it and working it out and working on the uh, the prose and making it better and so I'm, I, I know both kinds, the, the two normal kinds of authors, the pantsers and then the, uh, the really strict, uh, organizers. Mm-hmm. I'm neither one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I really, uh, I really kind of just float around and I do both and sometimes in the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't really have a very, very strict, uh, pattern of writing other than I, I, I work very good with a deadline. So the best thing that can happen to me is, Somebody calls me and said, I have to have this chapter by this time. And then then, then I, <laughs> I work better that way. <laughs> yeah. De- deadlines are huge, especially in indie writers that, you know, maybe don't have a publisher. Uh, yeah, no, I, so when you write, I'm just curious, like when you write like short stories or longer, shorter works, like when you send out stuff to Patreon, I mean, are you, you're just self editing those? Like, are they pretty clean when you're done? Um, you know, before you kind of go I- back through I have a few uh, levels of editing. I do self-edit quite a bit, and so they're pretty clean when I get done with them. And then I have a a couple of author friends who are also editors, who are paid editors, who I work with uh, regularly. And so, for example, um, with Legendarium and a few the short stories that I put out that are uh, uh, kind of uh, quickly put out there, and the Patreon chapters, those go through uh, Kevin Summers, mm-hmm. who is not only a great cover guy, he does most of my uh, covers for for those books, but he's also a good editor. And um, and then when I actually put those out in a book form that's going to be published and put on Amazon and, and paperback and all of that, then I'll actually hire an editor to go through it again. And that um, I have several of them that I've worked with in the past or that I continue to work with. And so that'll be another level of editing. So if you're just following me on Patreon, you're getting a, a fairly clean, uh, clean book. Um, there might be an error here and there, and we correct those as we find them. Mm-hmm. But you're getting it. Uh, it's been one or two levels of editing before it goes out. And then uh, when it comes out as a book, so most of the people who are my readers, they'll uh, be on Patreon. They'll, they'll read with me as I'm writing, but then they'll actually buy the book, usually in paperback. Uh, because, you know, as a plain person, I have a lot of people that still like to read the tree version mm-hmm. of the book. But uh, those books will be uh, have another level of editing before they actual, actually go out. Okay. Well, great. Yeah, I, I think that, as always, I think all of our writers that have come on, you know, they're the process is always different. You know, there's no one way. I think your way is whatever your way is, is, is the way. And, you know, you experiment, right. you try different things. Obviously, you know, deadlines can dictate that. If you're, um, I know you've worked with other, you know, kind of co-writing with other people, you know, usually an outline helps if you're kind of working with someone else. Um, so yeah, all, all good things. So, um, so as we kind of wind up, uh, the interview, uh, tell us kind of what you're working on, what projects are coming out, how people can, um, you know, get, get in the Michael Bunker world and, and where can people find you? All right. Well, I'm, I'm actually building a new, a couple of new websites right now. So my website is really unfinished. It's at michaelbunker.com, but it's, it's it's not anywhere near a, a complete website right now. And so um, uh, Patreon is a really good place to catch up with me. And that's at patreon.com forward slash Michael Bunker. Okay. Uh, uh, you can also find me on Facebook as uh, facebook.com forward slash off grid. Or just do a search on Michael Bunker. I'm the one that comes up first. Um, and right now I'm working on uh, 
Of course, Hell in the Sea uh, continues. It's been delayed a little bit because I'm towards the end of the book, and a big portion of the end of the book is supposed to take place in New Orleans. And I've been to New Orleans a few times, Mm -hmm. but uh, I really wanted to make it a little bit more gritty and a little bit more in-depth. And so I planned a New Orleans trip, and then it ended up getting canceled. And so I'm still trying to get down there to do some uh, on-site research. And if I don't, then I'll be doing it from uh, memory from a few uh, earlier trips. But mm-hmm. So that's still coming out. Uh, I've got a monthly um, Patreon uh, book that's coming out, Legendarium 2. And when people sign up for uh, Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, they get everything, which means they also get Legendarium 1, the full book, um, so they could get caught up. And uh, I'm working on a book called, a novel called Futurity. I've been working on for about five years. I'm actually rewriting it from a novella uh, that I published. And then I uh, am starting a work on two new projects in the next couple of months. I'm going to be working on Cold Harbor, which is the sequel to The Last Pilgrims, which will be a standalone book as well, uh, even though it's part of that series. And then um, I am going to be working on a it's a fictionalized true story of a family that um, escaped Cambodia, the Kim- killing fields. And uh, I'm work actually working with that, that family to write their story. And uh, that story could be made into a film because they're already discussing that. So oh, that's great. Got a lot of projects going. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys go on Amazon, we'll put on all the websites and, and Amazon. I mean, there's, t- you have tons of books, uh, very prolific and, um, any, I don't know if you can share this, but any, any more on the Pennsylvania, either TV show slash movie. Yeah. We, they re, uh, re up the option for a third year. Okay. So that means it's still, it's still in the works and, uh, you, you don't get much word. Uh, Hollywood's kind of like, <laughs> uh, it's a morass. <laughs> So, but uh, the good news is that uh, in January they did re-up the uh, option, so it's still working. Hopefully, Great. something will happen either in the film world or in uh, as a TV series. Well, great, great. Well, hey, Michael, thank you so much for uh, taking the time coming on the show. You've helped a lot of writers. Thank you for sharing your story and and all the best to you in your writing uh, and in the future. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you having me on. Well, there you have it, Prolific Writer Nation, Michael Bunker. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. Go check out all his stuff at michaelbunker.com. Go to his Patreon page, patreon.com slash michaelbunker. Get his free books. They are amazing. Uh, He will send out chapters every month of his new works, and he's a great writer. He's a great guy. So thank you, Michael, for coming on. Hopefully you gleaned a lot of great insights into the ups and the downs of writing and, uh, and the things he's learned along the way, the things he shared. And so go check out his work if you want to find a, a great writer, a new writer, maybe for hearing for him for the first time, michaelbunker.com. He'd really appreciate it. So thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. And hey, before I leave, I just want to say, if you get a chance, could you leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you listen to this podcast? It really helps get the word out on the show. And thank you, everyone, to all your kind words and emails and Facebook posts and reviews uh, for the Prolific Writer Podcast. It's such a privilege and a joy to do this podcast and to expose you to many amazing authors and to learn with them and and from them and to offer my own insights so that we can all uh, write faster and often and well and so thank you for that and your kind words and the last thing i have to say is go get those words on the page and i'll talk to you real real soon every person's story has something to teach us how others view life how obstacles are overcome how joy is felt how fears are faced, how love is expressed. The Matters of Faith podcast explores individual stories of people's lives and how faith plays a part. It may not be your story, but it may help shape yours. The Matters of Faith podcast with Jay Wilburn is on Project Entertainment Network. This has been an exclusive presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. 